Resistance, Part 1, May 1943, Occupation. Rainbow Restaurant, O'Connell Street, Dublin. Kevin Burke felt angry. He knew it was pointless, but he couldn't help himself. Every time he travelled down O'Connell Street, it struck him anew. Although there was little that a 12-year-old boy could do to change things, he still felt sickened when he saw the Nazi swastika flying over the general post office, where the Irish tricolour used to fly. It was over two years since Ireland and Britain had fallen to the Nazis, but it still grated with Kevin to see German soldiers occupying his country. The war that Adolf Hitler had started in 1939 by invading Poland was still going on, with fierce battles taking place between the Russians and the Germans on the Eastern Front. In Western Europe, however, France, Belgium and Holland had fallen quickly to the Nazis, followed by a bloody but successful invasion of Britain and Ireland in the autumn of 1940. Despite Ireland being a neutral country and the Irish army putting up a brave fight, the Nazis had ruthlessly overwhelmed all resistance and within a week of the fall of Britain, Ireland too was under Nazi rule. The Irish leader, Eamon de Valera, led a government in exile in Washington, while Britain's Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, had escaped Canada, from where he too was opposing the Nazis. Meanwhile, people in Ireland survived as best they could, with German law enforced by the Gestapo. Any form of resistance brutally suppressed and food strictly rationed. Bread, meat, fish, butter, sugar and tea were all in short supply to the general population and required ration coupons for their purchase. Kevin looked across the Rainbow Restaurant now as smartly dressed waiters served the guests. His anger was giving way to guilt. The air carried the delicious smell of roasted meat and a pianist was softly playing in the background. But why should he and his parents eat fine food in fancy surroundings when so many people in Ireland were going without? The discomforting answer was that as well as being a successful auctioneer, his father was also a member of Dublin Corporation. The Nazis had total control of Irish life, with an all-powerful Reich protector dictating German policy. But it suited the Nazis to have local politicians handling the day-to-day -day running of the city, and with that came certain privileges. With Ireland being an agricultural country, much of its output was now exported to feed the German army. Generous allowance was made, however, for selected Irish restaurants where German officers dined, and access to these venues was one of the most valued benefits offered to local politicians. Cheer up, Kevin. It might never happen, said his father playfully, breaking Kevin's re revere. Sorry, I, I was miles away, Kevin answered, trying for a grin. It was his mother's birthday today, and the three of them had come into town to celebrate. His father wore a well-tailored three-piece suit, and his mother wore a blue satin dress. For her sake, Kevin had kept his misgivings to himself, and now he turned to her. How is your fish, Mum? Lovely, thanks. Fresh from the trawlers and hoth, said Dad, and the chef here is excellent. That's a winning combo. Kevin nodded agreeably. He wanted his mother to have a nice birthday. 
He'd given her a homemade birthday card and a charcoal drawing he had done of the Royal Canal. And he resolved to make more of an effort to hide his feelings. They finished their main courses. Then Kevin looked up with curiosity as a German officer approached their table. He was a middle-aged man in a smartly cut uniform. By now, Kevin could tell the difference between SS officers with their black uniforms and swastika armbands, Luftwaffe pilots in their light blue uniforms and regular army men in their uniforms of grey, which this man wore. Major Weber, said Kevin's father, rising to his feet and offering his hand. Councillor Burke, good to see you, said the German in clipped English. This is my wife, Una, said Dad. A pleasure to meet you, Frau Burke, said Weber, bowing slightly before shaking hands. And this is my son, Kevin. Kevin rose. He hated being polite to those who were occupying Ireland and ruthlessly executing anyone who opposed them. But good manners dictated that he be courteous. He reached out to shake the German's hand. As an only child, he was used to meeting adults and normally he would have engaged in conversation. But although he had to shake hands, he was determined not to make small talk with a Nazi. A fine boy, said Weber, shaking hands and patting Kevin on the shoulder. Keep your hands to yourself. Kevin felt like shouting, but he contented himself with giving no reaction whatsoever. If Weber had picked up on Kevin's lack of a response, he didn't show it. I don't wish to intrude, he said, his English fluent despite the clipped delivery. Not at all, said Dad. No, indeed, added Mam with a polite smile. Kevin knew his father generally altered his demeanour to fit the company in which he found himself. But while Dad had no choice but to deal with these people... Kevin still wished his parents would be a bit more reserved with Weber. No, it's a family occasion, said the German. I just wanted to say good evening. And also to say that I look forward to your cooperation, Councillor, regarding the shipment to Hamburg next week. Which you'll certainly have, Major. Excellent. Well, Frau Burke, Kevin, said the officer, nodding in farewell. Kevin hated being called by his first name, as though Weber was a family friend. But he joined his mother in saying goodbye. Then the German returned to a table of officers at the far side of the busy room. Who is he, Tom? asked his mother. Major Conrad Weber. Quite an important person. Nice of him to come over. He's one of the more civilised ones, though he was also putting on a little pressure. Oh, how's that? There's a big consignment of beef to go to Hamburg next week. We have to handle the paperwork. He was marking my cards that he wants no snags at our end. Ah, but I've always kept on the right side of him, so we get on. Talking of which, Kevin's father turned and looked at him questioningly. What? said Kevin. You could have been a bit friendlier. Friendlier? Yes, you were borderline rude, Kevin. He probably thinks you were just shy, but you could have made an effort. Kevin felt his hackles rise, but he made sure to lower his voice. You want me to be friends with people who are murderers? Kevin, said his mother. Major Weber isn't a murderer, said his father in a low voice. They kill hostages, Dad. They kill resistant fighters. They kill Jews. Major Weber is a quartermaster. He organises food supplies. So he feeds the ones who do the killing. His father hesitated, then spoke again, his voice still low. Perhaps he does, but I can't change that. So what would you have me do, Kevin? Condemn the Nazis and end up being before a firing squad? or in a concentration camp, and maybe you and Mom along with me? Kevin didn't have an answer, but his father held his gaze. 
What would you have me do, son? He said gently. I, uh, I don't know, Dad. To Kevin's surprise, his father reached out and squeezed his hand. These are desperate times, Kevin. We do what we have to do and try to muddle through. All right? All right, Dad. But if you muddle through alongside people who committed murder, at what stage did you become part of the process? Anyway, that's enough of the groom, said Mam, with forced cheerfulness. Apple crumble for dessert, Kevin. Yes, he answered, trying to sign up beach for his mother's sake. Apple crumble for dessert. Mary Flanagan kept her head down and strode past Tierney's house, hoping not to be seen. Normally, she enjoyed being with Roisin Tierney, who had become her neighbour and friend on moving to Dublin two years ago. Now, though, Mary needed to be alone, and she kept up her brisk pace as she turned out of Shandon Park and made for Fibsborough Road. Mary carried a small basket of flowers for her father's grave, and she turned left on reaching the main road. It was a short walk from here to Glasnevin Cemetery, and the late afternoon sunshine bathed the city in warm golden light. The pocket gardens of the houses along her route were ablaze with colour, with flowers, shrubs and potted plants thriving in the early summer heat. Mary thought that May was the best month of the year, and she loved the bright green of the leaves when they unfolded after their long winter hibernation. Mary savoured the scented air, then her sense of well-being was shattered by a volley of shots. She jumped slightly, taken by surprise, even though she knew what the firing meant. More executions in the prison yard of Mountjoy Jail. The Germans routinely executed captured resistant fighters, which was brutal but unsurprising. What had cold people far more? However, was the willingness of the Nazis to execute black marketeers, trade union officials, rebel priests, in fact, anyone who dared to resist Hitler's occupation of the country. Mary's family had first-hand experience of the ruthlessness of the occupiers. Her mother's widow's pension had been stopped by the authorities because Commandant Flanagan was among those officers who had continued irregular warfare after the Irish army had been forced to surrender to the invading Germans. Luckily, her parents owned the house in Shandon Park, so Mary and her siblings had a roof over their heads. Mam had been forced to go back to her original career of dressmaking, however, and even now, two years later, money was scarce. Still, there were millions of people all over Europe in far worse situations. Mary reminded herself as she stepped through the main gates of the cemetery. She passed the tall round tower that was both a tomb and a monument to, to the great Daniel O'Connell, after whom the main street of Dublin was named. O'Connell had been a political leader who believed in bringing about change by non-violent means, which Mary had always admired. But how would someone like O'Connell cope when faced with a violent tyrant such as Adolf Hitler? There was no easy answer and Mary put the question from her mind for now as she made her way deeper into the cemetery. The overhanging trees created a cool and shady atmosphere and Mary met few other mourners as she approached the distant corner of the cemetery where the Flanagan family plot was. Looking around she saw nobody in sight and she stepped forward and placed her flowers on the grave. She gazed once more at the headstone, even though she knew its message almost off by heart. 
Prayer for the Soul of Commandant Patrick Paddy Flanagan, born 1899, died 1941. A proud Irishman and a loving husband and father, R.I.P. Are you not going to say a prayer for the deceased? Mary spun around. The man who had silently slipped out from behind the nearby trees had a wry smile. You put the heart crossways in me, said Mary. Sorry, love. Have you got a hug for your old dad? Mary grinned and quickly moved forward, dropping her basket and wrapping her arms around her father. He held her close for a moment and she realised that although he was still a big, powerful man, his father and grandfather had been blacksmiths, he was thinner than he used to be and she hoped he was getting enough to eat. She realised too, as she always did on their meetings, how much she missed him. But not having him, him at home was the price she paid for having a father who was a senior figure in the resistance. And even though she sometimes missed him very, really badly, Mary had to admit that it was a brilliant piece of deception to have staged a fake funeral. It had taken place after a bloody clash in the early days of the occupation between the Germans and the remnants of the Irish army that had continued to fight. And it meant that although the Gestapo were constantly hunting for resistance leaders, the name of Paddy Flanagan was never on their list. It was a big sacrifice for the family not to have their father at home, but his apparent death kept them free from official notice while he lived in the shadows, frequently moving from safe house to safe house. How's ma'am? he asked now as he released Mary. She's grand, always keeps the best side out. And the girls? Fine. Greta lost her front baby teeth and she threw a glass of water over Deirdre for calling her gummy Greta. Da smiled, but Mary thought she saw sadness in his eyes and she guessed that it must pain him to miss seeing his children growing up. So, said her father, got anything for me? Yes, answered Mary, reaching for her basket. A few rock buns. Mam got her hands in some flour. Lovely. And this, said Mary, handing over a large manila envelope. Good girl, said her father, taking the envelope and placing it in his jacket pocket. Any messages you need me to pass on, she asked. No, love, not this time, just... Be careful in the extreme. I know, Dad, said Mary with a smile. Sorry, I know I repeat myself. I hate, I hate involving you at all, Mary. Please, Dad, we've gone over this. You need someone you can trust. I want to help. All right, said her father, raising his hand in surrender. All right. So, any outside news, asked Mary, knowing her father often knew about developments before they became common knowledge. Yes, actually. Winston Churchill is addressing the US Congress today. Mary was unsure how a speech from the British Prime Minister in exile might matter, and she looked at her father inquiringly. Is that good for us? It is. Churchill has never been a friend to Ireland, but there's a saying in war, your enemy's enemy is your friend, and Winston Churchill is Adolf Hitler's enemy. So now he's our friend? Not exactly, but it's good if he persuades the Americans to commit more to fighting the Nazis. To help free Ireland, yes. The Americans are mostly fighting Japan. If it wasn't for the Russians, the Nazis would have a free hand in Europe. But if the British and the Americans launch an invasion in the West, while Hitler is bogged down fighting the Russians in the East, then there's a chance for all of us. Right, said Mary thoughtfully. Then let's pray that Mr. Churchill succeeds. Amen to that, Mary, said her father gravely. Amen to that. <laughs>